The Stream of Time. Hello, and welcome back to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. After seven episodes with Alexander the Great, and many more in the ancient Western civilization world, we are going to start a new topic this episode. And we are going to jump 1,500 years forward in time and more than 6,000 miles to the east of Europe. This episode, we are going to start a series about the rise and fall of the Mongol Empire. At its height in the mid-13th century, it was, and still is, considered the largest contiguous land empire in history. The list of modern states that would have been part of that empire based on the location is staggering. Mongolia, Russia, China, North Korea, South Korea, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, Uzbekistan, Iraq, Kuwait, Ukraine, and Romania. The empire building was kicked off, of course, by the most famous of the Mongols, Chinggis Khan. You may have heard of him referred to as Genghis Khan, but it's generally agreed that Chinggis Khan is a more accurate pronunciation. So that's how I'll be referring to him henceforth. Well, actually, I'll be referring to him as Chinggis Khan or Temujin. Temujin being his birth name. Anyway, I'm only pointing this out because inevitably some listeners will hear Chinggis Khan and wonder if he's related to Genghis Khan. So in summary, Chinggis Khan is the same guy as Genghis Khan is the same guy as Temujin. Another convention I'm going to be taking going forward is to avoid being too detailed in specifying geographic locations, and rather we'll try to give more general areas, to avoid confusion, and especially as many of these events took place in areas that would go across multiple modern nation-states, and trying to describe this over audio could get confusing quickly without adding much. For the most part, it's sufficient to know that the geographic locations we'll be discussing take place in the areas covered by the modern-day nations I mentioned earlier, and generally, the Eurasian steppes, Central Asia. But before we jump into the Mongols, first we need to set the context. For starters, we need to understand the nomadic cultures that preceded them over more than 1,500 years, as well as the relations of these various nomadic horse tribes to the closest neighbor, China. Nomadic cultures have been around for thousands of years, probably since at least 7,000 BCE. A key technological development for nomadic tribes was to use animals in more sustainable ways. For example, using milk or eggs instead of just killing chickens and cows only for meat. These tribes would take their herds to various areas depending on the season and depending on availability of feed for their livestock. Grass, basically. When the ability to ride horses was learned, first in these very Central Asian highlands that we are discussing, probably up to 6,000 years ago, the game changed dramatically. Over the next few thousand years, the nomadic peoples learned how to use horses with greater and greater skill, to the point that nomadic peoples were practically living their whole lives on horses, sleeping, eating, even using the bathroom off the side of their horse. They did have camps that they would set up in a kind of tent house called a gur. You might have heard them called a yurt, and while that's not inaccurate, the Mongolian term was gur, so I'm sticking with that. A gur could easily be constructed, deconstructed, and transported. But most of their awakened sleep time, they would be on horseback. I want to emphasize this because horseback riding in combat wasn't just a matter of training. Their whole lives were centered around the horse. 
By the time of the first Chinese emperor, Qin Shi Huang, also known as Shi Wang Di, there were several tribes, but they had been formed into a strong confederation. I mentioned Shi Wang Di, the first Chinese emperor, because his reign was threatened by such a nomadic confederation to the north, the Shangnu. He would wage war against the Shangnu to middling success. And while there had been walls as early as 700 BCE dividing the northern nomadic lands from Chinese areas to the south, Shi Di would start a construction project to connect these walls into one long wall, setting the foundation for what would become the Great Wall of China, which still stands today. Although, to be clear, in a very different form from the one that was standing during the time of Shi Di. Um, the masonry one didn't come for another over a thousand years. The Xiongnu would be a thorn in the side of China for some time. But what we see over the centuries is that various tribes would gain ascendancy over other tribes, and then those tribes would become the biggest threat to China. The Xiongnu, Jurchen, the Mongols, and the Uyghurs, who still live in China today and are being tragically persecuted as a cultural group. Now I want to emphasize an important point here. We are discussing a very large area, the Eurasian steppes, and there were many nomadic cultures that could have completely different routes from Turkic horse nomads further west to tribes like the Mongols in the east, and many more in between. In the thousands of years we are discussing, there was an enormous range of types of relations the various tribes had with each other. Often they would be at peace with each other and not have to compete over grazing land or resources. Sometimes they would fight each other. Sometimes they would confederate to fight against China. And the various Chinese dynasties over the centuries had various ways of dealing with the northern nomadic tribes, ranging from diplomatic marriages and an attempt to tie them closer together, all the way out to all-out war, all of which would again have varying degrees of success or failure. Furthermore, as some tribes would gain ascendancy, their enemies would be squeezed out and typically would go west to have their own effect on Western history. For example, the Uecha fled this area to settle in Greco-Bactria, modern-day Afghanistan and Uzbekistan, and founded what became the very powerful Kushan Empire centered in the aforementioned areas, as well as some of northern India and modern-day Pakistan. This empire lasted from the mid-2nd century BC to the mid-4th century AD, about 500 years. Part of the reason the empire was successful was that the empire lay on trade routes that periodically existed between the east and the west, an informal network of trade routes that is often referred to as the Silk Road, or in this case, the First Silk Road. The infamous Huns that terrorized Europe were probably in Europe as a result of pressures in the east pushing them west to attack what to them were softer targets. With all this, I think we're ready to look at the political situation between China and its northern nomadic neighbors at the time Temujin, remember, Chinggis Khan, was born in the year 1162. China was divided roughly in half in the 12th century. Up until the 12th century, the Song dynasty had been in control of most of China. In the early 12th century, the nomadic Jurchen tribe took control of the steppes north of China and eventually took control of the northern half of China itself, setting itself up as the Jin dynasty. Uh, now, this is sometimes referred to as the Northern Jin dynasty, so as not to confuse with an earlier Jin dynasty, which ran from 266 to 420 CE and had nothing to do with the Northern Jin dynasty that we're discussing right now. At any rate, 
from here on out, I'm just going to call the Northern Jin just the Jin Dynasty. In the mid-12th century, the Jin formed an alliance with the Tatars, another powerful tribe in the steppes. But around the year of Temujin's birth, the Tatars had grown too powerful for the Jin's comfort, and the Jin switched alliances to another tribe, the Kirites. The Mongols were another tribe on the steppes. But again, they weren't quite united under one leader, or would be grouped together in powerful but fairly loose confederations. They were often split by clans, which then split into sub-clans. Temujin's father, Yesegwe, was a ruler of such a confederation, the Kamag Mongol. This would be the precursor to the Mongol Empire, but at this point it was still very different in a couple of key ways. For one, different clans could still vie for control of the Kamag Mongol Confederation. But by the time Temujin died, there was no chance of becoming leader of the Mongols if he weren't a descendant of Temujin. For another, this confederation did not include geographic boundaries other than the pasture they were able to keep control of at a given time. Temujin, as Chinggis Khan, the great ruler, would unite and stabilize all of these horse tribes, as well as gaining control of static geographic areas that were conquered. When Temujin was nine years old, in the year about 1171, his father was coming back from a diplomatic mission and on the way back was invited by the Tatars to stay overnight in their camp. They provided him with food. While the Tatars were not on good terms with his tribe, it would have been a huge breach of etiquette for the Tatars to kill Yesegwe under their safe harbor. Unfortunately for Yesegwe, that didn't stop them, and they used the opportunity to do away with a powerful foe. They poisoned his food, he died before he made it back home, and when Temujin rushed to gain control of the tribe that he believed he had a right to, he was refused by the tribe, and even worse, his family was shunned by the tribe. The next years would not be easy on Temujin's family. This is probably a good time to talk about women in Mongol society. There are many remarkable women that show up in the story of the Mongol Empire, but they are hardly the exception. While there wasn't complete equality, women were respected in Mongol society and took up a number of chores that would be done only by men in other societies, including most societies in the supposedly quote-unquote cultured West. Women could own and inherit land, participate in and even lead religious ceremonies, and while they could not serve as great khans, they could serve as regents or temporary rulers while the next khan would be decided, sometimes for years. There's a very simple reason why this would be the case. The nomadic lifestyle in the areas the Mongols roamed was harsh and difficult. This lifestyle didn't allow for half the population to be restricted from doing activities crucial to the survival of the tribe. So we come to Temujin's mother, Hoilun. Hoilun had originally been betrothed to someone from another tribe, but Temujin's father Yesegwe kidnapped her and married her himself, something which probably didn't help Yesegwe's popularity with other tribes. Yesegwe had many wives, a tradition in Mongol culture at the time, but he considered Hoilun his first wife. When Yesegwe was killed and the family shunned, Hoilun took over and organized hunts for roots and food to survive. These teen years for Temujin would be tough years as the family had to make do with whatever food they could find. At around the age of 14, Temujin was captured in a raid by the Taichud tribe and put in a kind of portable stockade for some time. He escaped, as the story goes, with the help of a guard and he beat his captors to death with the stockade, then used the wood stockade to float down a river. 
He would encounter problems in his own tribe, as a half-brother of his from another of Yesigwe's wives was a challenge to Temujin's potential authority. The two of them were the elder sons of the growing tribe. Temujin would eventually kill his half-brother, settling that matter, and also foreshadowing his future brutality. As Temujin's tribe pulled itself out of poverty and gained strength, Temujin would ally himself with other semi-powerful allies. One such ally was Togrul Khan, Khan of the Karaite tribe. When Temujin's wife Berta was kidnapped by a rival tribe known as the Merkits in 1184, Temujin asked for Togrul's help in getting her back. Togrul also brokered allyship between Temujin and Temujin's childhood friend Jamuka, who controlled yet another tribe. Now, before you get confused about all the different tribes and all the names of the different tribes, don't worry. What's important to understand is that there were many tribes on the Central Asian Plateau whose relationships were in constant flux. Temujin would eventually end up fighting against and ultimately defeating both Togrul Khan and Jamuka, his former allies, and in the case of Jamuka, childhood friend. This was not unusual for this area, as again, life was a struggle, and limited resources meant that diplomacy often dissolved into conflict. And as a reminder, further complicating diplomatic relations were the fact that Chinese dynasties were making their own treaties and deals with different tribes, and those alliances would change as one tribe would become more powerful. For example, in 1160, the Chinese Northern Jin Dynasty was allied with the Mongols against the Tatars. In 1161, the Jin switched alliances to support the Tatars as the Mongols had become too powerful. In 1162, they switched alliances again to the Karaites as the Tatars grew too powerful. I'm emphasizing this to point out how remarkable it is that Temujin would eventually unite the tribes and bring out a stability that had hitherto been unseen. We will eventually get to how he did that, but for now, keep in mind that his area was in a constant state of high flux. I glossed over a point earlier that we need to go back to. In 1184, Temujin's wife Berta was kidnapped by the Merkit tribe. Temujin would eventually get her back several months later, but she was pregnant by the time he got her back, and it was pretty clearly not his. Temujin would raise this son as his own. This son was named Jochi, by the way. But everyone knew the situation, and the fact that Jochi was not Temujin's biological son would create some complications in succession after Temujin's death later. Jochi and his descendants would get a piece of the empire, and he and his descendants would have a say in who would become great Khan when the time came to choose. But the Jochids, descendants of Jochi, were never even considered as candidates in the determination of the election of the great Khan of the entire Mongol Empire. Getting back to Temujin, he had defeated the man to whom he had pledged a blood bond, Togul Khan, and Temujin's lifelong friend, Jamuka. This is somewhat ironic, as it was during his time with Togul Khan and Jamuka that Temujin learned his military skills. Remember, his father was killed when he was very young, and the family was forced to do whatever it could to survive and avoid military engagements. Temujin's military education came from the men he would eventually turn against, Togul Khan and Jamuka. Now, this is not to imply that Temujin was particularly perfidious or untrustable. As we've seen this episode, this area was constantly in political flux, both internally and due to external pressures, such as diplomatic relations that Chinese dynasties would make with various tribes. And I also want to point out that these breaks weren't exactly backstabs, 
it's better to call them falling outs over one thing or another, and that thing was usually who would be in control. Eventually, relations would break down to fighting, and Temujin and his group is the one that won. Here we see how Temujin managed to break millennia of diplomatic chaos. Instead of either wiping out the rival clan or letting them go, he would integrate them into his own tribe, building his military power and also dissolving the power of potential rival tribes. He would break the tribes up and send the soldiers to various of his different units so no one tribe could represent a large enough percentage of any group to rise up against him. As he would defeat tribes, he would absorb the army into his own, diluted down so they wouldn't pose a threat, but also increase the size of his army with each conquest. He had also united with the Chinese Jin Empire against rival tribes such as the Tatars. By 1206, Temujin's tribe was the undisputable leading power on the Central Asian Plateau. Temujin had defeated most of the other tribes, including ones we've mentioned, such as the Uyghurs, Karaites, Naimans, Merkits, and their old foes, the Tatars. And again, each defeat meant his army grew ever larger. His army, which we'll call the Mongol Confederation now, would have been huge, probably tens of thousands of highly skilled and very tough horse archers. And I can't emphasize this enough. His army was stable. We'll get into a bit more detail on the political, social, and military organization of the Mongol Confederation next episode, but suffice to say for now, the way Temujin had structured it, it was extremely resistant to falling apart and from internal threats. In 1206, Temujin held a Kurultai. A Kurultai was a large council put together in a single geographical location. Remember, these are nomadic tribes, so the fact that it's in a single geographic location is notable. Chieftains of major tribes would come, and generally the point of the Kurultai was to elect a Khan of the large tribe. The best way to think of a Khan is somewhere above a king and somewhere below an emperor. To be clear, a Kurultai wasn't something that was held every year or every four years, like a presidential election. It was generally held when someone felt strong enough to hold one and get the required votes. You could look at it as a way for someone to legitimize their own rule, while also demanding loyalty from the various chieftains. Later, they would be held when a great Khan such as Temujin would die, and a new leader needed to be determined. By then, a descendant of Temujin. In the case of the 1206 Kurultai held by Temujin, he was effectively formalizing what was already true. He had defeated these tribes already. We are told by the secret history of the Mongols, a document possibly written by or under the patronage of his son Ogadai, that the chieftains gave the pledge. We will make you Khan. You shall ride at our head against our foes. We will throw ourselves like lightning on your enemies. We will bring you their finest women and girls, their rich tents like palaces. This pledge is foreshadowing to the brutality and tragedy that the world was going to experience in the coming decades. So with the Kurultai in 1206, Temujin had established legitimacy. Temujin was now unarguably the great Khan. Temujin was now Chinggis Khan. Now, even with the stable army, Chinggis Khan now had a huge army. A huge army with a lot of energy that was used to fighting each other. Chinggis Khan not only had an army that was ready to be used, he had an army that needed to be used or risk internal tensions. There was a very easy way to channel that violent energy. 
and that was to focus it on someone else. Chinggis Khan was ready to pop the cork on that bottle and release the Mongols on the world. And with that, this is a good time to close this episode. Tune in to the next episode to find out who was the first to taste the fury of the Mongols under Chinggis Khan, and who was next, and next after that, and so on. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on The Stream of Time.